0: This is The Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. Sick man looking for the doctor's cure. Looking at hands for the lines that were. And endeavor masterpiece of literature. For dignity. If I want to find out anything, I'm not going to read Time Magazine. I'm not going to read Newsweek. I'm not going to read any of these magazines. I mean, because they just got too much to lose by printing the truth. What is reading the truth? Really I mean, the truth is just a plain picture.
1: You know, any kind of picture. Just just make some sort of collage of pictures.
0: Someone showed me a picture and I just led.
1: Dignity never been photographed.
0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to the Bobcats, the podcast where I talk to Bob Dylan fans about what else? Bob Dylan. I'm your host, Matt Steichen. It's our first episode since Bob turned 80 on May 24th. So happy birthday, Bob. I'm very excited about our guest today, who has been taking photographs of Bob for nearly half of those 80 years. He's attended over 250 shows in 14 countries going back to 1984 and has taken many iconic photos that have appeared in numerous books, magazines, fanzines, exhibitions for many years. You can find him on Twitter at Dylan underscore mostly Duncan Hume. Hey, Duncan, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt, how are you? Thanks. I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate you agreeing to come on Uh, i've i'm so excited to talk to you today because i've followed you on twitter for years and enjoyed your photos for years uh, and really appreciate what you and others do on so many different levels the biggest thing is that i believe that every time bob dylan steps on a stage anywhere in the world it's history in the making so i appreciate the importance of documenting that history And so any rules you break in the process, to me, uh, the cause is just. So is that documentation one of the elements that drives you to do what you've done for almost 40 years now?
1: Yeah, I think it it began kind of by accident, really. You know, when I first saw him, I wanted to record that moment, you know, that that moment of actually finally getting to see him. And so I took some pictures at that show, which was in uh, Cologne, Germany in 84. And then I think... Um, I didn't see him again until, um, 87. And so I just, I kind of just took my camera along cause so I thought, well, you know, I took my camera along in 84, I might as well take it along in 87. And then it became a thing really, you know, um, I did get some really nice shots in 87 with, um, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and Roger McGuinn, Um, so you know, I, I guess it kind of just snowballed from there. I never, I never intentionally went out to, you know, to record uh, visual images of Bob Dylan, but, um, as time went on, it became more and more kind of important to me. Um, I don't, I don't shoot at every show by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but the ones I do shoot at, um, you know, I'm very glad that I do. Cause, uh, as you said, it's, I think it's an important visual, um, document to, uh, To retain, and when we'll be, you know, look back in, you know, when we're long gone, as um as some kind of record of uh, what he looked like when he was performing these wonderful things.
0: Uh, yeah, I imagine. Uh, did you have some photography experience back in 1984
1: or was it just mm-hmm. sort of grab and see what you could get? I really didn't. Uh, I just went along with a little basic camera, got up as close as I could to the front of the stage in Cologne and tried to get, you know, something, um, you know, hindsight. Lord, I wish I'd had a nice zoom lens because, you know, it was far easier to shoot in 1984 than it is to shoot these days. Um, you know for a number of different reasons but notably you know security is was uh, was much less concerned about um preventing photographs from being taken in 84 as they are in 2019 which was my last experience so yeah i wish i'd had zoom lenses because i could have got some really nice stuff but um hey you know you you get what you're given and um and try and roll with it so as you've as your uh, photography skills have
0: improved have you started bringing in bigger cameras and with bigger bodies and longer lenses yeah
1: yeah i went through a period um in 87 i was taking 300 millimeter zoom lens in not a big you know aperture just a small aperture lens you know it's kind of difficult to conceal let me say you know um so you have to be creative about these things so yeah 87 i was using 300 millimeter zoom lens uh with a with a canon body more recently i've gone down to a 250 because i don't really need that um that reach. Um, sometimes, you know, if you're a long way from the stage, obviously you do, but I try and get fairly close to the stage. A lot of my pictures are very close head and shoulder shots. I just find his, um, his face and the expressions just just too good to miss really. So um, a lot of my pictures are very kind of tightly cropped to uh, head and shoulders. That being said, I think it's also interesting to see like the band layout and the stage layout And to look back on that and see how that's changed, too. So, yeah, it's always a challenge. Um, But I use a Canon body, and uh, these days it's 250 mil, 5.6 zoom, which seems to get the job done in in most cases. You know, it's not easy, I have to say.
0: I won't ask you to, uh, the magician, to reveal his secrets, and I don't (laughs) want to get you in any trouble. Not that Bob's people are listening to my humble podcast. Well,
1: you never know. They might be.
0: (laughs) Uh, so how close can you safely get? I'd imagine you can't sit on the rail with a camera.
1: No. Um, so usually I, you know, if I'm in the second or third row, I have a I have a rule which says don't shoot before the encores. You know, security and everybody are very keen to um, prevent people from, from taking pictures early on in the show they're very enthusiastic about their job but as time rolls on they they get uh, less so and then of course at the end you've got that kind of um format where he stands there with the band to take the applause and that's kind of a, a us- you know usually the moment that i'll not take out my camera i never use flash um which so you know i have to have the settings preset so i generally use one sixtieth of a second um, and then just open the lens as wide as it will go probably push it a couple of stops and use um 1600 iso so it's very fast and you know can be grainy of course you've got the added challenge of you know the light is usually pretty terrible you've got heads and shoulders and arms of the people in front of you that you know of course it's the end of the show and they're all going doolally so yeah it's not easy let me tell you it's not easy for every one picture that you know i've got that's maybe usable there's probably probably 30 pictures of people's in the back of people's heads and, uh, and arms and hands. I've done a lot of sports photography,
0: so I can definitely relate. I've spent a lot of late nights sorting through memory cards with hundreds of photos on them. Yeah, um, exactly. so do you, do you enjoy that as kind of a sporting aspect of it, that there's all these different factors weighing on what you're going to get? And you can...
1: yeah, I, I mean, over the years, it's almost become like a challenge. I think, you know, it's become like a bit of a, can I get something here? You know, there are certain venues that I I'll go to that I'll just know, you know, don't even bother because um, security might be really tight or it might be that it doesn't lend itself to um, to taking pictures but um, uh, if you go to enough shows then uh, sooner or later you're gonna you're gonna have an opportunity to take uh, a few pictures I try not to disturb people around me that's the other thing that I find you know other people are very um, conscious of is just not trying to mess up the experience for other people you know people holding their cell phones over their head with the flashes going I mean that's just not what I do. I mean, most people that are stood or sat next to me wouldn't even be aware that I was taking taking pictures. And I try and respect uh, other people's concert uh, enjoyment for the most part.
0: Yeah, that is interesting that you say you don't take any photos before the encore because you are probably missing some, you know, interesting Bob hand gestures or facial expressions. But at the same time, yeah. you're being respectful of people around you and uh, you're able to probably enjoy the show. Because I would imagine if you were looking at Bob through your camera lens for two hours, you probably would miss out on some things.
1: Exactly. Although there are years, 2007 is a particularly good year where the lighting early on was fantastic. So, in 2007, I probably uh, I probably did take a few early pictures. I broke my golden rule uh, a few times in 2007.
0: So, have you ever gotten caught in the act and gotten something confiscated? Have you always been? Able
1: yeah, to get away with I it? have. Uh, only on one occasion um, in Glasgow actually in 2007 when I shot early, see, broke my golden rule and see what happens. Um, but they were very nice. You know, they just said, Hey, you know, you got to come with us and hand your camera into a a little guy, you know, the back of the auditorium and he gives you a ticket and then you go back after the show. And I mean, you know, it was, they were very civilized about it.
0: Uh, You've taken so many photos. Do you have any that stick out? We could probably share them so people can, you know, see the visual of what you're talking about. Do you have any of your very favorite shots?
1: Yeah, I'll, 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 uh, I'll share a few. Um, I've got some pictures in 87 that I mentioned. I got on the last night of, um, that, uh, European tour, uh, I got, I got a second row center seat. So I was right down the front with a 300 zoom, which is probably too much zoom to be honest. Um, and those are the days of regular film. So I wasn't using digital cause it didn't exist in those days. And I had, I think I had two rolls of film and, um, I got the second roll of film used used up and and finished because i thought the encore was just about wrapping up because mcgwin and bob were singing chimes of freedom and then of course out comes george harrison and i had no film left the trials of a photographer right eh? so you had a
0: bunch of your work on display and in an uh exhibition at bob's 80th birthday event in tulsa just a couple of weeks ago usually your work's been published in print Uh, Like I said, uh, so what was it like for you to be able to actually see people uh, enjoy your photos? And what was that experience like?
1: Yeah, well, you know, we did it remotely. So I had like a 45 minute slot at the uh, conference where they were using Teams. And um, I shared my screen and went through, uh, went through a whole bunch of different pictures that I've taken over the years and just talked a little bit about the, the background to those pictures and what happened during that, uh, during those moments of me taking the pictures. Um, so it was great. It was fun. I mean, it was very cool that there were so many people interested in seeing the pictures, but I mean, there were people from all over the place, from Singapore and Brazil and Australia. And it was, it was cool. It was fun to be able to share, you know, those pictures that I've taken over the years with, um, with like-minded souls. Um, it was uh, it was a really fun experience. And, I, you know, hopefully in, in 2023 we can do it again in person and um, we can have another get-together and share more stuff. I mean, a lot of this is about the people that you meet and the friends that you make along the way as much as it is about uh, about seeing Bob. Of course, that's the most important thing, but, um, but uh, making friends and uh, meeting up with folk is also a huge part of the experience.
0: Uh, So before the internet, uh, you weren't able to share your photos, uh, as easily and and readily probably, uh, and a lot of it, of your stuff appeared in the fanzines, the numerous fanzines. How do you end up going from, uh, going to the show and getting a picture and taking it to actually getting your photo, uh, to these magazines? Were you submitting things or were you in contact with them?
1: Yeah. So I got involved with, um, Judas magazine was the magazine that I, um, spend most of my time taking pictures for. They appointed me as the staff photographer. You know, it's a very highly paid position right? It wasn't really. Um, but, um, so I was the staff photographer of the Judas Magazine. And so I would, um, I worked with Andy Muir and uh, provided him with a bunch of different photographs for for the times that the uh, magazine was, uh, was coming out. That was mostly 2001, two and three probably in 2004 too. So yeah, we work together closely. I've also provided pictures to the editors at uh, Isis magazine, uh, which I'm sure a lot of people will be familiar with. They used one of my shots for the 200th uh, edition of the Isis mag, which was which was great to be part of. So yeah, it just, you know, generally, generally these uh, fanzines are really desperate for pictures because they're fairly difficult to get hold of, especially most recent ones. So they're always grateful if I shoot them an email and say hey i've got uh, here's bob in whatever 2017 like, oh great you know send it over so um so it's fun to be involved and you know it's also rewarding to to uh, see your picture on the on the front of a magazine even if it's just you know an unpaid uh, endeavor which of course these always are and I think I read that you've also had some of your stuff appear on official
0: Dylan releases and in tour programs and stuff. So can yeah, you tell yeah. me, how does that process work? Because they're telling you at the show, don't take pictures. But then once you do, then they want the picture. So then how does that uh,
1: process take place? Yeah, they're, they're, they're bad, aren't they? Um, <laughs> I actually saw the picture, one of the pictures or the only picture that I've had done included in the uh, 2018 tour program a lady came and sat next to me and she bought a tour program and um she was flicking through it and i was just kind of leaning over her shoulder looking at the pictures and i she gets to a certain pay i'm like i took that picture Uh, and so then i you know i wanted to make sure that i was correct so i went down and i bought two copies of the program like you do um 20 bucks a piece So came back and double-checked, and sure enough, you know, I was certain it was my picture. And I found buried in the program were credits for the photographers, and they did actually credit me with the picture. So um, I'm assuming that they got it off the internet. I mean, they just probably did a right-click and copy, and, you know, the rest is history. Um, But, yeah, you're right. It's kind of interesting in that they, you know, on the one hand, try and prevent photographs being taken, and on the other hand, quite happy to use them in their, in their, uh, tour, uh, programs and, you know, promotional material, uh, to promote, uh, new releases as, uh, Andrea or Landy just found out when they were using one of his shots, uh, to promote the last album. So yeah, it's, it's kind of an ironic thing, but, um, Hey, you know, I guess we're all trying to just do our best, right?
0: So you've built up you know, this mountain of Dylan content between all the photos you take in and you've done some writing too. So do you have some plans to publish something on your own terms instead of having Bob's people take it at some point?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I do. I don't want to do anything until, um, the so-called never ending tour ends. I think it would be, and there are plenty of great books out there already. Um, but I think it would be as a complete, uh, artifact. It would be nice to to uh, do it from 1984 to the end of uh, whenever that end is. And you know, who knows? I mean, you know, um, who knows when Bob's going to uh, going going to uh, stop the never-ending tour, right? I think it was Robert Shelton that said Bob Dylan's the guy that jumps out of the hearse on the way to the cemetery. So you can never guess when he's when he's done. And I hope he's you know still touring ten years from now. We'll see. I sure hope so. When I saw him when
0: he was 59, I thought, well, I should see him this one time before I can ever see him again, 50 shows later. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, we've all been there. We've all been there.
0: Yeah, you said you didn't see him again until 87 after you saw him in 84. Was that just because that was the next opportunity?
1: Yeah, I was living in London. Um, I actually, I wanted to see him in 78. I was, a, I was a big fan in 78, but I had some school exams that I had to... Had to, um, you know, sit so I couldn't go to the um, to the 78 uh, Earl's Court shows. Um, I got picked for a, a cricket team. The cricket team cost me my attendance at uh, Blackbush. Oh. Um, I got selected for a cricket team and actually drove past Blackbush Aerodrome with big signs that said the yellow signs that said Bob Dylan this way. And, and I went that way oh, no. you know, to my cricket match. So I missed Blackbush. Uh, 81 rolled around which was the next time he played London and uh, I booked a trip, a two week trip to Portugal for a a couple of weeks on vacation and that coincided exactly um, with the 81 tour so I missed the 81 tour, my sister went to the 81 tour much to my annoyance Um, I didn't so uh, when 84 rolled around I was determined to not miss the opportunity of seeing Bob which is why I travelled initially to to Cologne to see (laughs) him
0: Uh, So then how did 84 compare to your expectations in the era where you couldn't go check the previous shows on YouTube before you went?
1: (laughs) You know, I don't know that I had any great expectations. I just was really excited to be able to see him in person, which is why I got as close as I possibly could. He came out and opened with um, Highway 61. And it took me probably a couple of minutes just to sort of get my head around the fact that I was – there seeing this performer who i'd really you know been a huge fan of since 78 or before um and there he was you know there he was performing highway 61 it was just almost like a dream um i know that sounds kind of corny but it was it was just the i remember it for the rest of my life it was a it was a really really cool moment when he walked out on stage with his, uh, he had some kind of powder on his face. It wasn't like the um, the rolling thunder, you know, white face to, but he definitely had some kind of makeup on and it was very strange to be able to see him uh, so close. Awesome. At the same time. Yeah. I, th- I've thought about this a little bit. I think
0: that maybe back then the eighties and then the nineties, when I started to get into it, I didn't have that many opportunities to see even what Bob looked like when he was singing. Like there weren't, there wasn't access to music videos he wasn't on tv that much so it was like to me my connection that i'd made with bob was always just hearing him and you know the feelings and connections with his music that i got just through hearing it so then to all of a sudden be in the same physical space as that person it was uh
1: it was like seeing a ghost or something yeah yeah and and, you know the visual image is really important to dylan if you look at how he's portrayed himself you know even go back to you know 61 or even earlier he first arrived in new york that, that that image that kind of you know hobo image with the little black cap and the and the baggy pants and the denim shirt that was very important to him it's always been that way uh the stage persona has always been really important to him and so you know that's part of the reason that i think it's important to try and capture those those uh visual images you know once in a while to um to enjoy him and then see how things develop because once he's gone, he's gone and there's going to be, you know, there's going to be the recordings. Um, And so if we don't have any photographic evidence of what he looked like, and uh, it would be a real shame, I think. So that's kind of why I do it these days. Uh, When I talked to previous guest, Ed Newman on the show, he talked
0: about what made Bob an interesting person for him to paint. He's done dozens of paintings of Bob and his different, uh, phases and stuff. What are the different elements that make him an interesting photo subject
1: for you? Oh, I mean, it's just expressions. And If you've ever been close to the stage in the front, you know, three or four rows, you can just see the, the myriad of expressions that he's shooting to the band. You know, one minute it'll be complete sheer joy. And the next minute it's like, you know, if, if I'm going to come over there, I'm going to wring your fricking neck. Cause you know, <laughs> You just screwed up that solo so badly so there's that kind of and that happens in a moment it's not you know it's not uh, a gradual process as i'm sure anybody that's been close up will attest to it's it's an immediate thing it's this his his face is constantly changing expression and that to me is part of the fun of um of trying to capture those uh those um images on uh, on film or on uh, discs these days, I guess. He really is chameleon-like,
0: and I remember Liam Clancy said that even in the 60s, that he would look different if you didn't see him for a week, and then you saw him, he would look like a different kid. You know, he'd go from chubby to thin, you know, and then from newsboy to a slick 60s hipster. And when you're on stage, when you're watching him on stage now, it's like you can see like, oh, there's a facial expression that reminds me of 60s Bob. And then all of a sudden you step back and you see the silhouette from greatest hits or like, yes, it's it's like he's constantly morphing between these different versions of Bob Dylan right before your eyes.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that I've experienced, I don't know whether anybody else has, but it's almost like he changes size. Sometimes it can be huge, you know, and sometimes it can just be kind of like, you know, small and not so significant, just, you know, even in, a, even in an individual show, it might sound crazy, but it actually looks like he's physically changing size on stage. And it may be something to do with the lighting and the way he moves, but I've, I've experienced that uh, on several occasions. Yeah. I think sometimes
0: when he's center stage and he's doing the more in your face style songs and he is wearing his big baggy suit. He's got like this intimidating presence. But then Uh if you look back at like some of those 99 and 2000 shows and you watch him like play acoustic guitar under the spotlight, all of a sudden it's like, wow, that's his
1: silhouette from 1965. And he looks like the exact same. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You can see all the album covers, can't you? Occasionally just flash before you. So let's take it all the way back. How did your Bob Dylan fandom begin? So, um, in 76, late 76, um, a buddy of mine gave me or lent, lent me Desire, the album Desire. I guess it must have been late 76. Um, so I was, what, 16, I guess, and I'd been listening to... All kinds of stuff but you know pink floyd and led zeppelin and all the things that 16 year old kids of, of the mid to late 70s listen to um uriah heep was another one that i was really really keen on you know just this whole kind of different generation of music and um he, this friend of mine lent me uh, desire and i took it home and played it and it, immediately i was kind of immersed in the stories trying to capture the the lyrics because in those days you know you couldn't go to google and pull up the lyrics to black diamond bay you had to figure them out so i'd literally sit there with my record player and um raise the needle i'd play a little bit raise the needle write down the lyric put the needle back and write down the next lines until i had the whole well you can imagine with desire you know that's a pretty wordy album so it took me a while to uh to uh Put all that stuff down on paper. Once I got it down on paper, then I could follow along. And of course, you know there's these mishearings of things. You know, um, Black Diamond Bay. Uh, I was convinced was Black Gammon Bay. For for in fact, I still hear Black Gammon Bay to this this day. If I play the if I play the album, um, so that's how I. So I was fascinated by both the stories, the urgency of the music, by the album cover. I mean, I think covers are really important. Um, again, it's that visual thing rather than the auditory thing. Um, you know all those mysterious things on the back of desire. You know that the Empress. You know, well, who's this? You know, and the, the Buddha, and you've got that girl with the long hair. You know, who's that? Well, why is she there? And is that Sarah Dillon on the right? You know, those whole that whole thing kind of just became a became a Pandora's box for me, and I want to find out more about uh, more about everything, more about the songs. You know, who was Reuben Carter, Ruben Carter What's what's all that about, you know, so you start kind of digging around and trying to find books on, you know, who Reuben Carter was, and you know, why did Bob write the song. So that, that kind of really gave me you know, the exposure to, to Bob that I had not had with any other music. I mean, there's lots of music that I enjoyed listening to, but this drew me in, in a much different way. I was much more interested in trying to understand the stories, the words, the rhythm and the urgency which you know has lived with me to to this day so i really i really did get into bob from uh listening to desire that was my first album um i still got the album actually i've never given it back to the guy who loaned it to me i really should um 40 years later or 50 years later I don't know. maybe one day i'll get it back to him
0: did you have any familiarity with the Bob Dylan of the sixties when you heard Desire, or did you go back from there?
1: Uh, I went back from there. I had no I had I don't think I had any recollection of, you know, blowing the wind or times or change or any of that stuff. Um, I was really surprised and pleased to discover there are all these other albums, you know. You go into the record store and there'd be like twenty or fifteen albums. I've never even heard of you know like oh well what what are these you know so yeah i began to collect those over a period of time you know saving up my my money to buy the next album not knowing anything about the album so i kind of you know bought albums that just came to hand you know if they if they were by bob dylan i was probably going to buy one so you know i'd come home with self-portrait and have the grill marcus moment you know um but then i'd also come home with uh, blonde on blonde and go "Wow, wow this is this is pretty spectacular
0: so were you pretty? Were you pretty open to the changing in styles? Because it, everything in the '60s is pretty different than Desire.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I wasn't. You know, I wasn't mad about the whole "Another Side of Bob Dylan" or the "Times Are Changing" album. Um, I really liked the first album, the debut album, uh, a lot. I played that a lot. I loved it. But yeah, the very early '60s stuff, I was not terribly mad about still still not to a degree um you know I'll I'll listen to um to Street Legal much more frequently than I'll listen to another side of Bob It's just you know because I prefer Street Legal to another side but in saying that you know it's like it's like trying to choose your favorite child isn't it you know it's it changes on a daily basis I guess
0: and you finally got to I remember reading on your Twitter that in 2003 you were in the crowd when he played Romance in Durango Hammerseth Odian right Yes.
1: Yes, yes, or Hammersmith Apollo, whatever it's called. Yes. Yeah, I'd waited, as had the majority of the crowd, uh, waited a long time to hear him play Romance in Durango and what a performance. I mean, Freddie Coella just nailed the guitar and Bob just nailed the vocal. That was probably one of the biggest surprises of all the shows I've seen. It was kind of like a, in fact, funny you mentioned it because I listened to it this morning. You hear that kind of reaction from the crowd of it takes them a minute. You know, they're like, what is this? You know, the hot chili peppers in the blistering. And they're like, what? what?" And then they realize what it is. And you hear this kind of, I don't know what it is, three or four thousand people like draw breath, you know. Oh, my God. It's romance in Durango. And yeah, it was an extraordinary performance. Uh, never repeated, of course, as, you know, as Bob can only do, you know, nail something completely, never goes back to it, which, of course, is part of the charm, isn't it? You know, um, but yeah, I was very fortunate, very happy to be uh, to be there at uh, that uh, that Hammersmith show. That's a top 10 live performance moment for me I wasn't there but I've listened to that
0: hundreds of times just the pure shock and in, in the audience reaction and then he totally nails the song
1: it's just amazing yeah. and I think the audience reaction is well obviously it's very genuine but it makes the moment even more special you know that kind of oh my god you can hear you know the combined uh audience just just you know almost almost get knocked over because they were just so surprised it
0: and was. that he knows he can do that anytime. And yet he chooses to almost never do it, that he could just decide to play uh, Caribbean Wind tomorrow night. And it would it would be on the cover. It would be like in Rolling Stone magazine. Bob Dylan played Caribbean Wind. Bob Dylan played License to Kill. Like, that's all he would have to do. And it would be newsworthy. And yet he chooses not to do it almost ever.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, that's that's why he's Bob Dylan, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's the stuff you don't do as much as it is the stuff you do do, right? I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, I've said I've I've talked about that with previous guests too. That Bob's there, uh, not necessarily to give the crowd what it wants, but to do what he wants to do, and and if other people like it, that's great.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Although I do think um, he's very conscious. More recently, I think he's he's very conscious of trying to provide something to the less fanatical concert attendees um, so you know some of the recent performances um, you know Don't Think Twice comes to mind in 2019 it's just gorgeous and you know if you're a if you're remotely interested in Dylan and you're going to spend a hundred bucks on a ticket uh, and he does that then you know, you're going to go oh, that was that was great so I do think there's a an element of of him um, uh, trying to please the regular the regular folk as well as trying to please the the fanatical loonies like um like you matt
0: Um, and you maybe even like me yeah he did say in that one interview in 2001 that he's he doesn't pay attention to the people in the front that he's playing for the people in the back so who knows if that's really how he feels but there is an element of uh, at least throwing a bone to the people that are coming to hear like a rolling stone every once in a while. I mean, his most played songs ever are highway 61 and like a rolling stone all along the watchtower. So right. clearly he understands that, that at least for portions of his uh, live career, he's trying to give fans something they recognize every once in a while. Right, that, uh,
1: that performance of the Romance and Durango, of course, was the third night in London where he played, th- he played three different venues on three different nights. So, I mean, logistical nightmare for the guys having to move the stuff around. But, he, you know, he doesn't care about that. Um, and those were, I mean, the, those three shows were just incredible. I mean, I, I think that was very much a, I'm going to give the fans what they want here. And there was no pandering to the casual observer. I don't think it was just all you know, those three shows were were fabulous.
0: Do you have any other out of the 250 plus shows, any individual song performances that stand out as like high, high watermarks of the never ending tour for you? I
1: I guess you are going to ask me that question. I've got a a list here that, you know, when I started looking at it, I thought I'll I'll just mention these two. And then of course it got to five or six and then 10 and 15. But um, yeah, there's a few Um, when the night comes falling from the sky in 87 um, London 87 October if you haven't heard that I would strongly suggest that you dig it out um, I was sat halfway back in the auditorium it was the Wembley Arena so it was a, kind of a yucky venue um, and it was just fabulous it was a fabulous performance and I, at the end of it I jumped up and you know cheered and clapped and I looked around me and the entire block was seated and just kind of clapping in a very unenthusiastic way and I just thought he just nailed that and I'm the only person that got it, you know, surely, surely not. Um, so that was a, that was definitely a moment I remember. Um, and you may have heard other people talk about, um, again, back to Hammersmith, actually 1990, when he had this, uh, grand piano on the stage for the 10 nights, four nights in Paris and then six nights in London, just ignored it for the entire 10 shows. And, um, you know, I had, I worked really hard to get great front row seats for those shows. And in the end, um, I was holding up signs saying, you know, for sale, one piano, Um, never used, you know, one careful, and all this kind of ridiculous stuff. Um, And then, of course, on the last night, he goes over and plays Disease of Conceit. Uh, sits on the piano stall. Well, actually, he didn't sit on the piano stall. He kind of hovered around the piano stall and pounded the piano. And the place, I mean, the Romance in Durango moment was amplified, amplify that by two or three and you'll get the disease of conceit response. And then, of course, there was that wonderful moment at the end of Disease of Conceit where he walked forward and uh, and held his arms out and said, okay, you know, to the crowd. <laughs> Just, you know, okay, is that is that going to um and then the band would, the band started to play um you're a big girl now and he uh, switched it up and said no uh, we'll play i remember you uh, which i thought was also a great tribute to the to the audience participation at that particular moment so yeah disease of conceit in 1990 i think takes a a fair bit of beating as far as, as far as i'm concerned there are there are a ton of others but um not sure how much time we've got but <laughs>
0: Yeah. I've seen the video of that disease of conceit performance and that is just amazing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Anybody that hasn't seen it, go to YouTube and dig it out because it's uh, quite incredible. In my bootleg
0: collection, 1987 and 1990 are actually kind of underserved years just as it happens, the way I've accumulated things over the years. I don't have a ton of stuff from 87 and 90. So maybe I need to look into those years a little bit further. Cause I saw on Twitter that you said that his energy levels in 1990 were, not that you hadn't seen before and haven't seen since so
1: that's completely correct i mean uh 114 different shows over six nights in uh, hammersmith odeon in february of that year uh just the song selection and the and the enthusiasm that he was he was just belting stuff out and it was fantastic the other thing was of course the band really had no idea what he was going to call next you know so that is also adds to the edge, if you like. You know, that was when G. Smith obviously was playing with him so could really play anything that Bob could uh, throw at him. Um, but yeah, those shows were were fabulous. I'm not sure if they were fabulous musically, but they were fabulous from an excitement perspective and a sheer kind of spectacle. They were, um, they were fantastic shows.
0: So I've talked to some of the different guests about that experience of going to see shows. And for some people, it's very much almost like an isolating feeling. They don't have any friends that want to go with them, that sort of thing. And then some people, like for myself, uh, it's kind of a social thing because my wife loves Bob and we've got friends that love Bob and we go out and have beers before or after the show and talk about, you know, well, did you hear the way Bob phrased that line in (laughs) in the song or whatever? And so we're really able to bond over it. So you going to shows for this long, uh, have you built up quite a network of fellow travelers that you've been in touch with all this time?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, I've made some really good friends through going to, going to see uh, Bob, um, you know, all over the place. You know, I was in, uh, I was in Italy in 93 without a ticket, and uh, a guy that I knew. At the time, not terribly well. Knowing better now, but he walked up to me and said, "Hey Duncan, you got you got a ticket for the show?" And I was like, "Well, I'm still looking, trying to get." Something. He gave me like a second row center ticket. You know, wouldn't take any money for it. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just fantastic. So yeah, you do build up a a group of friends and like-minded souls. You know, I, I've seen whatever it is, 256 shows. I'm a I'm a part timer compared to some people I know. I mean, there are people that I know that have seen two or three times that number of shows that travel um, and have a good network of, of friends that help them and support them. So, yeah, it's, it's there's a real kind of camaraderie, I think, and that came across in the in conference recently. You know, we're all trying to do our day jobs and live our regular lives, but, um, you know, when Bob comes around to tour, um, we're all going to jump on Ticketmaster and see if we can get a, a front row seat or a second row seat as quickly as we possibly can. Um, so yeah, I've made some. I've made some really good friends. One of my uh, closest friends. Of, we've been together now to see 100 and 140, I think, shows together. And when you travel with somebody, you know, you, you find out all the the good and the bad and the ugly. And I, I've never had a crossword with him. He's uh, he's a, a great travel companion, and we've experienced a lot. And we laugh a lot, you know, about different experiences that we've that we've had all through um, seeing uh, seeing Bob. So. Yeah, uh, there's a there's a whole network of people, and uh, a lot of those people, you know, countless friends, um, just turn up on the day, and you'll see them. You know, it's funny. I was uh, I was in Birmingham, Alabama, one time, and uh, I walked into this really deserted bar, and there were two guys in there from Birmingham, England, who I knew, and nobody else apart from the barman, and they didn't bat an eyelid. Hey, hey, Doug. How are you you know we hadn't planned to meet we just you know it was that kind of you know oh yeah you're here for, obviously you're here for the show you know Birmingham Alabama so uh, Birmingham England is a long way um so yeah it's funny you know you get you get accustomed to seeing the people on the road together it's fun there's a restaurant and bar in Ames Iowa near the
0: coliseum where we go see bob uh and we we go to this restaurant before the shows and we, we walk in and you can pick them out like okay the four <laughs> people at that table are going to be at the show the two people at that table are going to be at the show
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah Se- seen that a lot it's fun uh, to, it's almost uh you know, the show is just part of a, a greater experience bonding with those other people. And then you also, you know, get to see different places. Like I'd never have a reason to go to DeKalb, Illinois or Sun yeah. City, Arizona or Fargo, North
1: yeah. Dakota. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I've been to places in the US and in Europe that I would never go to. San Remo, I'd never gone to San Remo. Even Pisa, maybe I'd have gone to see the Tower, I don't know, But, you know, um, yeah, um, Slovenia, Ljubljana, Slovenia. I, I've never been to Ljubljana, Slovenia, but... I found my way there one night. So, yeah, you do see a whole bunch of different uh, places that you would never travel to. Te in Italy, uh, I wouldn't have known anything about. Um, the most beautiful venue I've ever seen in my life. Unbelievable. Down there in Sicily, it's a Greek amphitheater that was modernised, modernized, updated by the Romans. And uh, it sits on the side of a hill in the southern part of Sicily. And the night, Bob played there. Mount Etna was erupting behind the um, behind the auditorium. It's all outside, so you had this kind of I don't know what it was, 70, 80 degrees. Mount Etna erupting in the background, darkness falling, and Bob out there on this on this ancient stage. Those things you don't forget in a hurry. You know, it was just. Um, so sometimes it's uh, travel. Travel can be as fun as seeing the show. You're absolutely right. Right. I've I've seen mostly most
0: of my shows in my sheriff theaters and arenas, but we did see him on the shore of Lake Superior in his hometown in Duluth. And that was, you know, just there's there's no words to describe what, uh, you know, that means to somebody like me or you, who's not only tied up in the music, but in his
1: life history. Right. Right. Uh, was that the first time he played there? I guess it was 1999. Is that is that right? Yep. Not, with Paul Simon. Yep. Yeah. I went up to uh, Hibbing after that show and. uh did the pilgrimage up to the up to the high school and the and the house where he grew up? I wanted to ask you. I saw on your Twitter
0: you had a picture of yourself showing some pictures of Larry Campbell to Larry. So okay. I imagine being around the tour as much as you have been, that you've had a lot of memorable, or maybe not even that memorable, but interesting interactions with with Bob or even just people around Bob, musicians and other people. What are some of your more memorable moments like that?
1: Um, yeah, I mean i have bumped into bob um you know we haven't had a conversation as such i mean you know i did ask him one night if he would play ring them bells it was in paris and um it was just a brief like you know passing and uh he said oh you like that song i said yeah i I really love that song i said will you play it tonight yeah maybe i will well guess what you know I spent the whole evening, you know, waiting for him to say, I met a guy on the street tonight and he really likes this song. I'm going to sing it for him now. And nah, didn't didn't happen. Um, I I flew back from uh, Dublin one time into London Heathrow with the band sat around me. That was um, Winston Watson and JJ and Bucky and Tony Garnier. That was fun. Literally, I had Winston to my left. I think I had J.J. on my right. I'm sat in the middle. Um, we were talking about uh, Wanted Man, the uh, the wonderful fanzine that John Baldy ran for so many years. And um, at the time, John had not been particularly kind, I don't think, about J.J.'s um, guitar playing, which I love, but John didn't seem to love it. So J.J. was flicking through this Telegraph magazine trying to, trying to find the bad bits about him so he could be all upset about about uh, Wanted Man and, and John Pauly. Um, but yeah, I mean, met Allen Ginsberg leaving the Beacon Theatre one night. We just happened to kind of walk out together. Um, I'd seen him at the stage door um prior to the show and I so I knew he was around and we literally just left the theater together and I just struck up conversation with him um and I asked if he'd managed to see Bob that night and he said yes you know he's very he was a very small man yes yes I have yeah yeah oh and what did you you know can I asked what you talked about oh he, he wanted me to recite him some poetry so I Really, what, what was, by well, this time we were out on the street, on a street corner, and, you know, there's Ginsburg and me kind of face to face. And that was kind of a surreal moment. And he said, um, oh, he asked me to recite some William Blake. It's a poem called um, Ask a Thief to Steal a Peach. And so at that point, he got right up into my face, or as little as he was, looking up at me. And he recited this uh, two verse poem, Ask a Thief to Steal a Peach, right up in front of my face then swiveled and turned, turned around and walked down Broadway, left me there with my chin on the sidewalk. Um, that was kind of a nice moment. What year was that? Uh, 1990, October, 1990. I asked him if he enjoyed the show and he said that no, the sound was, he didn't like the sound. He said the sound was very bad where he was sat. But yeah, that was a, those kind of moments you don't forget in a, in a hurry. Met Joan Baez once at Mud Island in um, Memphis talk to her for a little while She, i said she was sitting watching i was gonna say watching the river flow she literally was sitting there watching the river flow and i came up and uh i said i hope i'm not disturbing you you know have my bob dylan hat on my bob dylan shirt you know and uh i said do you mind if i just talk to you for a minute she said you can stay but just not for too long so i was like mm, okay so i had to decide how long was too long i guess i'm not sure but that was that was fun she was she was very sweet but yeah I've met I've met a bunch of the band. I flew back from London to Atlanta, I think 2015 with the band um, after they'd finished the playing at um, the Royal Albert Hall. So there was um, Charlie and all those guys on on the flight. That was that was that was fun to see them immediately the, you know I knew what they'd been doing the night before because I'd been doing the same thing. So it's fun. yeah there are others probably, but those are the ones that come to mind.
0: Uh, so my last question is kind of a, a, a general one, uh, but you can answer as specifically as you want. Bob said that the purpose of art is to inspire. So what is it that inspires you about Bob and inspires you about his art?
1: Oh, I think it's um, a couple of things. One is his abundance. You know, um, I spent some time with Christopher Ricks a few years ago at his home in Boston. We were talking about... Bob, obviously, Um, his favourite subject as well as mine. Um, And he used that term. He said, well, this abundance is just incredible. And he does have this – the productivity of the guy is unbelievable. You know, he's not writing songs. He's, you know, making gates or he's painting or, you know. It's just – so I think his – I think the inspiration is is one of never sitting still and just – getting into that same old groove and just being this, you know, letting every day go by and just doing the same thing. He doesn't allow that to happen. Never has. Um, he's never kind of rested on his laurel, so to speak. You know, he's never been one of those that says, Oh, well I wrote, you know, times are changing and blown in the wind. So that's me taking care of the rest of my life. You know I mean? Witness what he's just produced with the, with the Rough and Rowdy Ways album. It's just extraordinary to have a 79-year-old still producing music that's relevant and you know enjoyable is just um, you know fabulous. So I think I think that uh, that kind of willingness to never sit still is is something that um, is always always amazed me. The other thing I think is his ability to remember lyrics. You know, I mean, I know. You know, I probably listen to "Chimes of Freedom" as much as anybody has. But stick a microphone in front of me with a guitar and say, "Well, can you play it?" I'm mean, have a hope, you know. So I think his ability to recall, his recall ability, is incredible. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of fun. I think it's um, maybe not particularly inspiring, but it's uh, something that I'm tre- tremendously in admiration of
0: especially considering he said that he doesn't really listen to his old records so is he like studying his lyric book or how how does he recall these songs it's pretty well and then then yeah
1: you're right and then you come 84 for example when he completely rewrites tangled up in blue uh, you know and then goes back to the other you know how does that work you know it's it's this kind of I have no idea how his, how his mind um, or his brain manages to recall some of the um, lyrical changes that he then keeps you know or maybe he switches back to the original version again. it's just you know oh, this is the 84 tangled up in blue so it goes like that. But on the 87 it goes like it's just like really? really? How does anybody do that? So, you know, I admire those things. I'm I'm not sure whether inspiration is the right word for for that, but I'm definitely a huge admirer of his ability to recall his own work. You also told me that you love
0: his single-mindedness. Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Well, I think he's been, you know, he doesn't fit into the traditional category, does he? He's never, never been anybody that, you know, marches to the beat of somebody else's drum. You know, he's been, he's been very focused on, he does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And he's in the position now, of course, where he can do that. Um, But even back in, in the early days of his career, he was, he was very determined to do what he wanted to do at sometimes the detriment of, you know, of his career you know, there were times when he, you know, walking off TV shows that, you know, perhaps, but maybe you could argue that was a fantastic career move and that he did that. But um, I think, yeah, he's been, he's not, he's nobody's, um, he's nobody's lapdog, you know, people don't say to Bob Dylan, well, we need you here, you need to do this. There's an element of that maybe in, um, maybe I saw that little bit in Unplugged, you know, where he comes on with the glasses and the polka dot shirt and, you know, maybe there's a little bit of that there, but for the most part, he's he just does what he wants to do when he wants to do it, and I think that's that's incredible, and it's very brave, especially in the early days of his career, and even in you know later years when he you know was playing all those uh, fantastic shows at the at the um, Warfield, you know, in '79 uh, and '80. I mean, that's a tremendously brave thing to do, um, and some might say, you know, committing. Uh, committing suicide in terms of your career but you just went ahead and did it and and here we are you know he's 80 and he's still doing it i mean the 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 single right the just came out was it 17 minutes long i mean you know 79 years or 80 years old now and he's making singles that are 17 minutes long it's fantastic love it You
0: have been listening to The Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. You can find back episodes of the show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Please feel free to rate, review, and share a link to this podcast with your Bob-loving friends around the world. For the latest Bob Dylan news and commentary, follow me on Twitter at Matt Once again, thanks for listening and be sure to join us next time for another episode of The Bobcats.
1: To your songs that you want to say to people? Good luck. Good, You don't
0: say that in your songs, do you? Oh, yes, I do. Every song tails off with good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you make it. <laughs>